The Bible doesn't give us a sanitized record of history. If you've read your Bible, you know that it shows us a picture of reality, that the world we live in is dark, the world we live in is twisted, it is wicked, it's filled with pain, it's filled with tragedy, heartbreak. The source of all of this is sin, original sin, the fall of man in the garden like we saw in Genesis chapter 3, and this sin has metastasized. And it corrupts and destroys everything that it touches. And it even infects the chosen line. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the people God promised to bless and make a great nation of them. And through them bring redemption and blessing to the whole world. Even they are not untouched by sin. The people of God are chosen not because of their goodness, but because of God's grace. We are a needy people. And in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we do find beautiful examples of faith and obedience, but we also find a record of failure. There are no heroes in the Bible except for God. Only he can overcome our sin, and it's only because of his faithfulness, it's only because of his gracious power that the plan of redemption would ever move forward. If it was up to us, this thing would have stopped a long time ago. But through imperfect people, And despite the tragic consequences of sin, God is able to overcome even our failures and the tragic pain and destruction that they bring. Just to catch you back up to speed to where we are in Genesis, you'll remember that Jacob has now returned to Canaan. He's come back with his wives and his children, but he does not settle at Bethel, the house of God, where he had seen that vision of the the stairway to heaven. He actually settles near Shechem. And there are echoes here in chapter 34, some echoes of the story of Lot. You remember Lot and his family, how they pitched their tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were two Canaanite cities that were infamous for their immorality and their violence. Like Lot, Jacob's proximity to the wicked people of Canaan will prove to be disastrous. What we find in in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 34 is a shocking disgrace a shocking disgrace first look at the foolish actions of a girl named dinah in verse one says now dinah the daughter of leah whom she had born to jacob went out to see the women of the land the hebrew language here indicates an act of impropriety in that culture the women did not usually go wander abroad unless they were involved in a certain occupation Uh, that was not looked well upon. In that culture, the women stayed home because it was dangerous to wander abroad. If you remember the story of Ruth, uh, you, you remember that Ruth goes to glean in the field of Boaz, and Boaz encourages her. He says, keep close to my servants, to my men, because it would be safe for her if she was by herself in the fields. Who knows what could happen? So typically, the women, especially in a nomadic society like Jacob's family, they would engage in work and life in and around the campsite. And the verbiage here reveals that she didn't just go out for a random stroll. She went out with a purpose. And it wasn't to go meet up with her girlfriends at Starbucks and have a cup of coffee. She went out to see specifically the women of the land. She wanted to know what life was like outside of the clan. What life was like away from the people of God. What life was like among the worldly and immoral people of the land. Abraham and Isaac had both been adamant, absolutely Emphatic that their sons would not marry one of these women of the land. 
Remember, Abraham sent his, his servant to go all the way back to Haran to find a wife because he did not want Isaac to marry one of the Canaanites. You remember that Isaac's son Esau had married two women of the land, and it says that they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau had done it anyway, brought misery to the family. Later, in the Mosaic Law, God would explicitly forbid intermarriage with the women of the land. Why? Because of the spiritual and moral corruption, that influence that they would have on the people of Israel. These people, the people of Canaan, were people that were immoral and they were destined to be judged, destined to be dispossessed of the land of Canaan. You remember that God had told Abraham that he was going to give him this land. He said, not yet, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But there was a time coming when God would literally have it up to here. And he would take these people away and give the land to the Israelites. Well, in venturing out to dabble in their culture and customs, Dinah puts herself in a vulnerable position. She's the drunk girl at the frat party, okay? That's what's going on here. But remember that she is, according to verse 1, the daughter of Leah. And this note in verse 1 is not just pointing out biology. It actually reveals to us the emotional and relational dynamics of the family. She's the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob. Remember who Leah is. She's the unloved wife of Jacob, the less attractive one. Later we'll see that Jacob favored Rachel's sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And that favoritism caused huge problems in the family. Imagine how much more insignificant might Leah's daughter have been to him if he didn't even value her sons. It's hard to imagine that she wouldn't have some daddy issues, right? In this light, her actions make a little bit more sense. No love from her father? May as well go out there and see what's out there, right? Well, tragically, Dinah ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And she suffered a horrific horrific crime at the hands of a man named Shechem. Verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. This man, Shechem, is the prince of the city. Don't get confused. Shechem is the name of the town, but it's also the name of a man. It's named after him. He's the favorite son of Hamor, the Hivite. And apparently, he wasn't used to taking no for an answer. He's the big man on campus, and he does whatever he wants. And just like Eve saw the fruit and took the fruit and ate the fruit, Shechem sees Dinah. He seizes her. And violates her. The ESV translates this that he lay with her, but the Hebrew text is more direct, more explicit. There is no with in the original text here. There is no consent, there is no cooperation, only force. This act of lust and violence humiliated her. She is the victim of his sinful and selfish passion. His moments of pleasure brought her a lifetime of shame. But he's different than David's son, Amnon. If you've read First uh, and Second Samuel and, and the career of, of David and his family, you see in Second Samuel that after Amnon raped Tamar, he then hated her and cast her away. But this is different. Shechem's soul is drawn to her. The text says that he loves her. But it's obviously a selfish and barbaric love, an insatiable infatuation. But he speaks tenderly to her. 
can imagine him saying, everything's going to be all right. We're going to be happy together. He has plans to make her his wife. And he tells his dad to make it happen. Go get me this woman, this girl, for my wife. What a picture of entitlement. Hey, I want her for a wife. Go make it happen. Amazingly, there's no signs of remorse or guilt on Shechem's part. He's like, hey, this is great. I like her. Let's keep her around. This is an eye-opening reflection of Canaanite culture and morality. He has no conscience, no conscience at all. How does everyone react to this shocking news? Well, first we see Jacob's response in verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Amazingly, Jacob seems to do nothing. He seems indifferent. Father's in the room. Does this make sense to you? It doesn't to me. He should have defended her honor. He should have sought justice on her behalf. I was reading a story in the news a few years back about a young father in Texas who discovered a man who was abusing his daughter, and he hit the guy so hard he killed him. That makes sense to me. This response doesn't make sense to me. Jacob's lack of action and his silence does not look good. That's how Dinah's father, Jacob, responds. What about Shechem's father? Verse 6, Hamor. Well, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak to him. There's no rebuke for his son's wickedness. He agrees to clean up after his son to help smooth things over. Apparently, he always gives his son whatever he wants. The city's named after him. He's the prized son. He, like Shechem, seems unbothered by the horror of Dinah's rape. What about the sons of Jacob? Verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. They are filled with grief and inflamed with anger. Finally, someone responds with a sense of moral backbone. They are outraged for the sake of her sister and her honor. It says such a thing ought not be done in Israel. That is categorical denunciation. This is wrong. Dinah may have acted foolishly, but she's never blamed for what happened. There is no victim shaming here. The responsibility for rape falls squarely on Shechem. What he did was reprehensible. Unlike Jacob and Hamar, they rightly condemn Shechem's actions. And you have to wonder if they're angry. Angry not just at Shechem for what he's done, but probably also angry at their father Jacob because he hasn't done anything. What are you doing, Dad? Not only was their sister shamed, but their father's reputation and his honor has been smeared as well. This is the shocking disgrace, the violation of Dinah. Jacob's daughter. The second scene is one of negotiation and deception. We find this in verses 8 through 24, this negotiation between the families and some mutual deception as both sides try to play the other. First, Hamor comes and speaks. We find his speech in verses 8 through 10. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be yours. Dwell and trade in it and get property 
in it. Hamor conveniently does not mention the crime. There's no reference to Dinah as far as to what happened to her. Definitely no apology, just a proposal. Not only does he request the hand of Dinah in marriage, but notice he also proposes an arrangement between the families. It's not just Shechem and Dinah that he wants to set up together. He says, let your daughters marry our sons and our daughters marry yours. Let's intermingle together in marriage for all. He offers them as, as a motivation economic prosperity. He says, dwell in the land, get property, trade. Notice that these are all things that had been promised to them by God in his covenant. Blessing, prosperity, possessing the land, those are things that God had said, I will give you. Now here's this immoral Canaanite man who's offering them the covenant blessings of God if they will take a shortcut. All they had to do was ignore Abraham and Isaac's wisdom about not intermarrying with the people. All they had to do was ignore the promise of God that the Canaanites were going to be dispossessed from the land. All they had to do was give up their identity as the unique and separate and distinct people of God. And it would all be theirs. This offer sounds generous on Hamor's part, but remember, his son had committed an atrocity. And we'll see later in verse 30 that his son actually still holds Dinah hostage in her house, in his house, rather, back in Shechem. So really here, he's negotiating from a position of strength. The godfather is making an offer that they can't refuse, asking for Dinah when they already had her, offering peace and access to the land and prosperity when God had already promised that to them. All they have to do is become entangled in his enterprise, and as we'll see later, there are strings attached that he's failed to mention. So that's Hamor's speech, but next, Shechem speaks in verse 11. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask, ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem's been watching you know, his father speak, and he's been biting his tongue, but eventually he can't help it. Consumed with desire, he blurts out his longing for Dinah, and his passionate outburst doesn't make for very good negotiations, does it? Name your price, he says. I'll do anything. I want Dinah. You have to wonder if Hamor is kind of groaning and rolling his eyes, like, listen, this isn't how you negotiate a deal. <laughs> well, after Shechem's outburst, Finally, someone representing Dinah speaks, but it's not Jacob. It's Jacob's sons, her brothers. Look at their speech in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Pretty quickly, Hamor and Shechem realized that even though Jacob is technically Dinah's father, he's somewhat passive about this whole thing. It's her brothers that they really have to deal with. 
And their initial anger and grief at hearing this news was righteous. But their response here is not. Like their father Jacob many times past, they act deceitfully with trickery and deception. There's far more brewing in their minds than what comes out in this proposal. Though, she, though Hamor and Shechem had come to them offering economic advantages about the land and trade and offering political advantages, being one people with them, you know, through this intermarriage, the sons of Jacob make a religious objection to this potential arrangement. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant. That's what marked them off as uniquely set apart to God. It was a symbol of God's covenant promises to them. And so they tell Hamor and Shechem that if they would join them in this religious rite, then they would agree. But if not, there's sort of a veiled threat here. They would come and take their sister and be gone. They knew where she was, and they were ready to do something about it. So this is their firm and final offer. They draw this line in the sand. You have to wonder if they actually expected them to agree to this, or if this was them trying to set you know, an impossible bar to clear. We don't know. But we have to look at what's wrong with their answer. You see, not only are they acting deceitfully, dishonestly with them, intentionally deceiving them, that's obviously wrong. But even worse, even worse, they're using a holy and sacred symbol of God's covenant, circumcision, as the very tool of their deception of these people. God, part of this covenant blessing was that God had promised that they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And now they're using the symbol of that covenant to deceive and bring destruction upon families of the earth, profaning this sign and symbol. Their zeal for justice has led them into religious and ethical compromise. What happens next is that Hamor and his sons agree, and now they just have to sell it to their friends and neighbors. It says in verse 18 that their words, this proposition, it pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, the circumcision thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city. And they spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city... These are all the decision makers. The gate is where everybody met for business. All who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. All the men of marriageable age, all the men who had a say, they agreed. And they participate in this arrangement. Because Shechem was the one who had the town named after him, the most honored son of Hamor, his opinion has weight. He's got some sway. And he convinces everyone. But notice they conveniently leave out any mention of the issue with Dinah. Her name doesn't even come up. They simply try to convince them of the political expediency of this. These people are at peace with us. And this is a way to ensure that they're always at peace with us. And they also hold out the economic opportunity. Won't all their flocks and their herds 
their possessions be ours. Listen, if we do this, it's going to line our pockets. When they were talking to Jacob and his sons, they'd made a very generous offer of land. But to the men of the city, they reveal their true intent is to profit at Jacob and his family's expense. Hamor and Shechem are eager to swallow up Jacob and all he owns. And the people agree, and the men are circumcised. The negotiations are complete. Argumentation is done. And they seem to have reached, right, an agreement. But what happens next, the final scene here, is one of shocking retribution. Verses 25 through 31. First, we see the actions of Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, in verses 25 and 26. On the third day, when they were sore, all the men who had been circumcised, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. This is cold-blooded revenge. Shechem had taken advantage of their sister, and now Simeon and Levi take advantage of them in their sore state. They would have been immobilized. They would have been in bed at home trying to heal. And they come in and systematically, brutally butcher every male in the town. Simeon and Levi are two of the full brothers of Dinah, and they go house to house and kill everyone. There is no eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth here. This is only exponential retribution. Hamor and Shechem had assumed that they were at peace. They had told the men, these people are at peace with us. Little did they know, these two brothers were on the war path. And although they had promised to give Dinah to them, if they would only be circumcised, they actually come to take her back. And they leave mass casualties in their wake. Now there is an element of justice here. And if you're like me, there's a part of you that nods your head when you read this, especially the part about Hamor and Shechem. But the force that is used is disproportionate. It is brutal. It is excessive. And their shocking violence adds even more horror to an already heartbreaking story that rape is followed by a massacre. Rather than righting the situation, what these two men have done is actually make things worse. They have added evil to evil. But they weren't done. The brutal massacre is followed by opportunistic plunder. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Hamor and Shechem had told the men of the city that their livestock, their property, their beasts, it will all be ours. But it's actually the reverse that happens. The sons of Jacob come and plunder the city. Now this is more than just retribution. Now we see their hearts. Even more of their hearts. This is greed. This is spite. This is revenge. Shechem had taken Dinah's honor, so they take everything from Shechem. They did indeed become as one people, just as Hamor had proposed. But it was the sons of Jacob who absorbed the city of Shechem, not the people of Shechem who absorbed the family of Jacob. 
And the story ends with a little bit of back and forth between Jacob and his sons. There's mutual disapproval between them. This issue only served to deepen the wedge of, of distrust and tension and hurt that existed in this very dysfunctional family. Look in verse 30 and 31, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Notice it's only in the aftermath of this bloodbath that Jacob finally speaks. But his words are not that of a righteous man, a leader in his family. It's not the words of someone who's trusting in the, prob- the promises of God, not the words of someone who's clinging by faith to God's covenant. Jacob does rebuke his sons, but not for their deceit, not for profaning the covenant sign of circumcision, not for their murder or greed. Jacob's concerned about one thing, And that's his own safety, his own comfort. Although God had promised him land and many descendants, though God had proven that he was a faithful protector, remember last week he delivered him from the hands of his murderous brother Esau and reconciled them together? Jacob's still afraid of retaliation by the neighboring peoples. He was afraid that he would now be seen as a threat to be exterminated. Though Jacob had wrestled with God and had his name changed, At the Jabbok, the the river there, we see that the old fear and self-concern of Jacob is still in there. Jacob's sons answer him with a note of righteous indignation, idealistic anger. In verse 31, it's blunt and it's to the point. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? They seem unconcerned with the covenant promise but also unconcerned with their own moral compromise. They feel justified in what they have done. They defend themselves. Jacob rebukes them, and they throw it right back in his face. Their rhetorical question really condemns both Shechem and Jacob to violate their sister and then offer to pay for it. That's not how you treat one of ours. Shechem was acting like the paying customer at a brothel. And for Jacob to even listen to this offer was to play the pimp. In their eyes, Jacob was a failure, and Shechem got what he deserved, and they throw it back in his face. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You know what? In this story, no one comes out looking good, do they? Some are worse than others, but no one emerges completely innocent and upright. There are none righteous. No, not one. This is a dark stain on the history of Israel as an embryonic nation. And that's the exposition of our text. Be warmed, be filled, right? What do we do with a story like this? This is heavy, this is dark, this is heartbreaking, and it's shocking. And it was shocking in that day as well. As Moses wrote these words, there's a sense of shock and grief and shame that this belonged to their history as a nation. This isn't gonna be your positive, encouraging verse of the day on Christian radio, right? Nothing in this chapter is gonna show up. What do we do with a story like this when we read our Bibles and as we try to study through entire books of the Bible? Well, I want to bring out, number one, this point, that we need to understand the biblical and theological themes as they relate to Genesis and the rest of Scripture. 
we need to understand this story for what it says about itself. We need to understand that not every text of Scripture is there to give us tips to live by. Not every text of Scripture is about us. Sometimes we need to read the Scriptures to understand the Scriptures. How does this advance the storyline of Genesis? How does this reflect what came before and point to what comes next? How does this deepen our understanding of what God is doing throughout history in the Bible and in all of history? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask to understand this story for its own sake, for its contribution to the development of the big story, because we want to be biblically literate. We want to understand what's here and why it matters. So consider how this story reflects what has come before it. What we see here is actually a familiar theme. Jacob, like his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham, fails to protect a woman in his family out of fear. Remember when Abraham went to Egypt? He was afraid that they would kill him and take her, so he lies. Remember when Isaac was sojourning in the land of Abimelech with the Philistines? He tells the same lie because he's afraid Abimelech will kill him, take his wife. Here we have Jacob who refuses to act on behalf of his daughter because he's afraid of what the people around will do to him. But just like Abraham and Isaac, despite this failure, he's still the bearer of God's gracious promise. God does not remove or cancel his covenant blessings to Jacob just because he has a checkered past. This is who our God is, and this is how he operates. As you read through the book of Genesis, you see it time and time and time again. This is covenant grace, undeserved love and mercy and care. God's faithfulness, despite man's failures, his blessings do not fall on perfect people, but on needy people. But it's not just covenant grace that we see here, because Jacob doesn't get kicked out of the covenant, we also see the covenant cursing, cursing coming to bear as well. You remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God had told Abraham that I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will what? Curse. There is blessing and cursing in the book of Genesis. Shechem's foolish choice came, came back to bite him. Yes, Jacob's sons are not in the right but we see, as we'll see throughout the life of Joseph, that God can use sinful men, evil men, and even use their, their wicked actions to still bring about his sovereign purposes. You cannot treat the covenant people of God like this and get away with it. We see the covenant curses falling upon the head of Hamor and Shechem. But this story doesn't just look back, it also looks forward. This story is an ominous indicator of the character of Jacob's sons. Very soon we'll be shifting, the, the spotlight is going to shift from Jacob to his son Joseph. And as we read the Joseph narratives and we see what happens between him and his brothers, this helps us understand that these are the kind of men they are. And it's an ominous indicator of what their character is is really like. So it's helping to set the stage for what's going to happen throughout the life of Joseph. If we, if we go beyond Joseph to the time of Joshua and the conquest of the land, this story also helps to justify and, and, and helps us to understand exactly how God could tell the people of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to wipe these people out and to take their land. What kind of people live in Canaan? 
People like those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. People like the people of Shechem who would rape your daughter and then knock on the door and say, let's all be friends with no conscience, no shame. God was going to use an imperfect people, the nation of Israel, to judge the wickedness and the immorality and the barbaric cruelty of these people. So when you get to Joshua and you raise your eyebrows when you see what God commands, go back and read Genesis 34. Go back and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and understand that God is just when he commands the conquest of Canaan. And as we look even farther than that into the future, this story helps us to understand why the promised blessing didn't go not just to Reuben, the oldest, but it also skipped Simeon and Levi. The covenant would continue. The promise of a king would come through Judah, the fourthborn. You see, Jacob never forgot what Simeon and Levi did, the horrific act of brutality. He never forgave them. On his deathbed, he passed over them in favor of their younger brother, Judah, when he pronounced the blessing. In Genesis 49.5, Jacob says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi all forfeited the privilege of the blessing that came from their father. Kings would come through Judah, including the eventual king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. We need to understand how this story fits into the big story, to the development of these themes in Scripture. But I do think, even though it's difficult to perceive a, a takeaway for us and, and, and moral implications for us, I do think that we can learn something that does apply to our lives today. We need to understand the moral implications for our own time. Although this story is not about us, it is, in a sense, for us. You see, in the age of the Me Too movement, in a time of many seeking to right racial injustices, in a country where we have abortion clinics and we have school shootings, we need to examine our response to evil. How do we respond to the wicked and evil atrocities that happen in the world around us? Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators on Genesis comments that Jacob and his sons are both wrong in how they respond. He says this, the appeaser, that would be Jacob, and the avengers, that would be Simeon and Levi, mutually exasperated and swayed respectively by fear and fury were perhaps equidistant from true justice. They exemplify two perennial but sterile reactions to evil. What does he mean by two perennial but sterile reactions to evil? What he means is this, that people always respond to evil, and they often respond in ways that are not correct. They're sterile. They are ineffective. They are useless. They are futile. They are vain. One would be apathy, like Jacob, and the other would be angry vengeance, like Simeon and Levi. How should we respond to evil? Not like Jacob with indifference, not like Jacob with fear, not like Jacob with a desire to simply protect ourselves and preserve our own comfort. This is not what it looks like to love God. This is not what it looks like 
to treasure righteousness, to seek justice. This is not what it looks like to hate evil, that which displeases God, and love what is good, what honors God and pleases him and blesses people. This is not what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. We can't just put our hands in our pockets and turn a blind eye to the things that go on around us. This does not honor God. But we also must not get swept up in the crowd as they march by with torches and with pitchforks to go kill all the males of Shechem and plunder their goods. You know, to be honest, sometimes that feels good, doesn't it? It's appealing. It feels righteous. But if we're honest, our motives are often mixed when we feel that kind of anger and when we seek that kind of vengeance and try to bring about justice by our own hands. Often our emotions are out of control and the actions of quote-unquote justice actually end up harming people and dishonoring God. James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Alan Ross comments, young zealots usually respond correctly to evil, but their tactics may profane the covenant faith, attempting to destroy or punish evil through lawless or unrighteous acts should not be confused with righteous indignation. Rather, the righteous must seek justice and oppose evil in a manner that brings honor to God and his covenant. You see, our response to evil must demonstrate both a commitment to righteousness and justice, but also a recognition of an important truth, a recognition of this, that the divine role of judge, jury, and executioner, that job is not open for applications. That's God's job. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never, never? Maybe just usually, right? No, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You can't go bomb the abortion clinic just because what they're doing is an atrocious evil. That is God's job, to bring about wrath and justice. The only way that we can live, live in the tension between apathy and anger, the only way we can find the proper balance between retreat and trying to seek revenge is if you are fully convinced that God keeps his promises. If you are fully convinced that God will bring justice to bear. If you're fully convinced that God sees and he knows and he cares and he is with us and he will one day make all things right. Nothing's going to go unnoticed by our God. And only if you know that, and only if you're submitted to that, can you not plug your ears and close your eyes. You can actually look evil square in the face and actually have a resource to deal with it, to be able to speak the truth, to be able to do what is right and just, but at the same time acknowledging that God is the judge, jury, and executioner. And he is the one who will one day pour out wrath on those who have committed these evil and wicked deeds. This is the confidence of the psalmist. Turn to Psalm 94. I want you to see this. We won't read the whole thing. And I'm going to try not to preach a second sermon on Psalm 94. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses. There's many psalms that capture this beautifully. 
prayers to God that grieve and mourn over the wicked and painful and tragic things that happen in the world. Prayers that acknowledge the pain and, and, and the suffering that such wicked actions are causing. But prayers that look to God as the one who is to take action. Prayers that, that cast themselves humbly before God, clinging to his mercy. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance. O God of vengeance, shine forth. You know, doctrines like God's wrath and vengeance are uncomfortable for us. But when we read Genesis 34 or we hear about another school shooting or we hear about some other act of terror, we see the things going on around us, this doctrine is one we need. It's one we need. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless, and they say, The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. That's what's going on. And it's breaking the heart of this psalmist. He's pleading with God to do something. But notice his confidence in verse 14. Here's his confidence. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. He concludes with a note of triumph, even in the midst of his weeping. In verse 22, the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. If Jacob had lived by this truth, he would not have been so apathetic and afraid. If his sons had lived by this truth, they would not have resorted to deception or caused so much collateral damage. Our response to evil, we need to respond in a way that demonstrates both a commitment to righteousness and justice as well as a humble faith in the promises of God, confidence in who he is. And what he will do, he promises both grace and comfort and protection and healing, but he also promises judgment and wrath for the wicked. Acts 17.30, Paul preaches that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The reality is this. One day Christ, the risen Savior, not the suffering servant, not the humble carpenter, the risen king who's riding on a white horse, who's coming to bring judgment, one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. His, his death on the cross means grace for sinners who repent. Grace for sinners who have been apathetic and angry who have done nothing when they should have acted and who have taken vengeance into their own hands. God calls us to repent. His death means grace for sinners who repent, but his return means judgment for those who do not. Those who will not repent will experience his fury, his righteous wrath, his holy judgment. You see, it's really in the work of Christ that we find the answer to both our need for forgiveness 
and the assurance of justice. When we look to the cross, we see that our sins, our failures can be atoned for. And we also see that the God we serve is a God of justice who does not just wink at sin. If you doubt his righteous wrath, look to the cross and see what it cost his son to pay for our sin. What happened there is a foretaste of what will happen to all who do not repent and come to find shelter in the shadow of Jesus' cross. We ought to grieve over the ugliness of sin, and as we grieve, we will come to realize that the only healing for us is found at the cross. The blood of Jesus atones for our sins. But we also look to the cross and are assured that God is just, and his punishment of sin is sure. We can rest in his grace and trust in his promises as we wait for his judgment. God, as we read this story, it's shocking to us and it's grievous to us. We weep for Dinah. We put our hands over our mouths when we see what happened at Shechem. And God, as we look at Jacob and as we look at his sons, we probably see a reflection of often our responses to evil. God, I pray that you would work in us by your spirit. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we're thankful you don't ask us to fix all the world's problems. We can't. It's not our job. But you have told us that when there's real people with real names face to face with us, and we have an opportunity to do them good, that we must do it. We must love our neighbors. I pray that you would help us to stand up and to speak out and to do what is right for the sake of justice and righteousness. But God, I also ask that you'd help us to humbly trust you to bring vengeance and to wait for the timing you have appointed to judge the earth. That's not our job. So God, help us to be good stewards of righteous indignation and to funnel it into prayer, a vertical prayer like the psalmist asking you to work. Help us never to take those actions into our own hands. And God, we pray that you would as we read the book of Genesis, help us to understand what you've done throughout history and to be thankful, to be thankful for your grace that overcomes the failures and the tragedies, your grace that brings about a Messiah through this family, a Messiah who would forgive our sins and who will one day reign in righteousness, wipe every tear from every eye and make all things right. We ask Jesus that you would come quickly. Come quickly because our world is hurting, our world is broken and we need you. And as we wait, help us to pray and wait and act in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.